welcome to Dr. Who Panel to Panel. This is Jeremy B. Ment, your host, saying hello and welcome to episode 143 of Dr. Who Panel to Panel. Sorry for the extended delay between episodes, but we have a new episode right now. You are listening to it, and I hope you like what you hear. In this episode, we will do like we normally do. We'll start out by covering the news. We'll check out and see what's new in way of Doctor Who comic news. And then we will go into the Matrix for our review segment. We will check out the latest new comic book offering, or comic offering from Doctor Who. In which case, this is part two of the story, The Everlasting Summer, which was the strip that just came out in Doctor Who magazine number 581. And then we'll have an interview. This time around, I talked to comic writer Lila Sturgis. Lila wrote a four-issue miniseries for IDW Publishing called A Fairy Tale Life, featuring the Tenth Doctor and Amy. And I reviewed that quite a while back, but uh, I finally, after all this time, had a chance to get to know Lila a little bit and uh, find out about how she became a Doctor Who fan and how she became a comic writer and everything between those two ends. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Lila. I hope you enjoy this new episode of Panel to Panel. And let's quit beating around the bush. Let us jump into this episode and cover the news. It's time to check out the news and find out what's going on in the world of Doctor Who Comics. We are going to start out like we normally do by taking a look at the calendar and find out what came out. Uh, We're almost here to the end of August, so let's take a look at the month of August and see what uh, has been released. We will go back to Wednesday, August 3rd. That is when Doctor Who Comic Origins issue number 3 came out from Titan Comics. That is the one featuring the Joe Martin Doctor and uh, we're almost done with the miniseries there, or at least we were as of issue number three. The week after that, there were uh, nothing new, really new came out for Doctor Who comics. We then head to Thursday, August 18th. That is when the new Doctor Who magazine came out, issue number 581. It's a really good issue, lots of good articles, and we also had a new uh, part of the comic strip, which we'll talk about here shortly. This past week, as of this recording, uh, nothing came out for Doctor Who Comics. However, on Wednesday, August 31st, just squeaking in for the end of the month, Doctor Who Origins issue number four, which is the finale of that miniseries from Jody Hauser, will be coming out. So make sure you hit your comic shop and pick up that last issue if you've been buying them and uh, find out what happens to the end of the Joe Martin Doctor, at least for that story. In other Doctor Who comic news, uh, one of the things I I have a list here in front of me, one of the things I forgot to write down, so I'm going to mention it right now, is that they announced uh, probably about three weeks ago that uh, BBC Books is going to come out with a new version of the David Whittaker Doctor Who and the Daleks novelization. Uh, and, but the nice thing about this one is going to include illustrations by a friend of the show and excellent comic artist Robert Hack. Uh, Robert was hired to do some uh, spot illustrations to go with this this uh, new printing of Doctor Who and the Daleks, uh, taking scenes from the episodes and putting them into this book. He has released, well, Robert has shown, and BBC Online, if you do a search for Robert Hack and Doctor Who and the Daleks, you can see some of the uh, illustrations that he has done, and they're just beautiful, um, really, really nice stuff to look at. And I'm looking forward to this book coming out. I believe it's supposed to come out sometime in November. 
It's uh, I don't have a date for the U.S. release, um, but you can find it on Amazon over in the U.K., so make sure you get that book uh, over there. Hopefully, we'll get word as to when it's going to be released in uh, regular here in the United States. So make sure you check that out. It's not quite comic book related, but Robert is an excellent comic artist and uh, definitely something you want to have on your bookshelf. Another couple, a uh, few things that are going to be coming out. Uh, the uh, Keith Barnfather, who is a kind of a Doctor Who documentarian, uh, he has done numerous interview videos uh, over the years uh, in a series called Myth Makers. And he just came out with one, uh, thanks to Paul Cornell, who mentioned it in his newsletter this past week. There is a uh, DVD that came out featuring an interview with Paul Cornell from the Myth Makers convention that happened not too long ago. He was interviewed by uh, Lisa Bowerman, who those of you who listen to your Big Finish audios know that Lisa Bowerman plays Bernice Summerfield, the companion that Paul Cornell created. And uh, this DVD just got released. Uh, if you go to timetraveltv.com, you should be able to order it. I believe the Mythmaker DVDs uh, that get released are all region-free, so you can watch them on a region-free DVD player. Um, they sometimes work in re Region 1 DVD players. Otherwise, if you have a computer with a CD-ROM, you can watch it on your computer. But uh, if you want to learn about Paul, uh, his career in writing, which includes an awful lot of Doctor Who comics, uh, make sure you check that out. Also, another book that is going to be coming out uh, not too long from now, uh, comes out uh, October 1st over in the UK, is from Panini. It is Daleks, The Ultimate Comic Strip Collection, Volume 1. I believe I mentioned this on the previous episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Uh, we do have a release date now of October 1st over in the UK. Uh, it's listed in the August preview catalog for US uh, from Diamond Comics, which means it should be coming out probably in November, December over here in the States. But it is going to collect a, uh, the, a bunch of the, Doctor, or the Dalek comic strips from Doctor Who magazine. Uh, the nice thing about it is also including some non or some comic strips that don't feature the Doctor, just uh, some of the Dalek solo strips, which haven't been reprinted in uh, graphic novel form before. They're also including some uh, director notes in the back of the book. Uh, some notes are being uh, done by a friend of the show, Paul Schoons. Make sure you check that one out. Uh, this is Volume 1. Volume 2 is supposed to be released over in the UK in December, which will collect the remainder of the Dalek comic strips that Doctor Who magazine has put out. And once again, books that you definitely want on your bookshelf. I know I do. And then another, uh, lastly in the news, one other thing that Paul Cornell mentioned in his newsletter is that on October 5th, the Many Doctors collection, which is a three-book set, from Titan Comics will be coming out. Basically, this is kind of a repackaging of the uh, multi-doctor stories that Titan has put out uh, over the, the course of their run uh, publishing Doctor Who comics. This is a nice little slipcase edition with a spine that showcases all the doctors on it. And uh, it looks a really nice little package. I ordered one for my bookshelf. But that is coming out on October 5th. And if you haven't read the the special events that Titan Comics has done for Doctor Who, uh, their run on Doctor Who Comics, make sure you pick up this book because you get some really nice artwork from very talented uh, artists. 
and stories from Paul Cornell and other writers, writers and has plenty of doctors. What more could you ask for? So there you go. That is the news this time around. It is time to go into the Matrix on this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. We are going to take a look at part two of The Everlasting Summer. This is in uh, the newest issue of Doctor Who Magazine, issue number 581. It is written by Jacqueline Rayner, with art by Russ Leach, coloring by Mike Summers, lettering by Roger Langridge, and the editors are Marcus Hearn, Alan Barnes, and Jason Quinn. The previous part, the very first part, uh, the Doctor and Yaz and Dan decide to go investigate this place called the Garden of Everlasting Summer. Uh, they found an ad or something that leads them to believe that if you are uh, going to, to, if you don't want to age, if you want to retire, you go to the Garden of Everlasting Summer and the Doctor is like, there's something just not right about this place, so we're going to go check it out. Um, by the time we get to the end, we are introduced to some of the alien-looking characters that are uh, living there inside the building, and uh, something bad starts going on outside, and so they all rush into this house, except for Dan, who gets locked outside, um, and he isn't being let in. He is holding on to a, a little bee creature of some sort, and that's where we pick up this uh, part two. Dan decides that since there's a storm or something coming up, um, he's going to head back to the TARDIS, and he can get inside there. He takes his little bee creature with him, and that's when he notices when he goes to shut the door of the TARDIS that uh, something's going on with him. He's starting to change. We then go to the Doctor and Yaz and uh, the aliens inside this building where we find out that two of them, who look kind of like uh, feathered dinosaur humanoids, um, have a beef uh, with the Doctor that the Doctor has done them wrong, and they kind of got... They're, according to them, their lives got ruined by the doctor somehow, and she has no idea what, what they're talking about. Um, they are going to attack, but not until the doctor takes some yarn and uh, decides to tie them up, although it's kind of haphazard tying up. But then she asks, she has to talk to the, the alien creatures that are here and uh, do some detective work and try to find out what's going on. While she's doing that, um, the doctor is trying to find a way out of this building and everywhere seems to be uh, locked shut except for a kind of a skylight over the main door that she's able to climb up to and get out, although she has to escape a couple people in order to do so. But then she's going to go try to find Dan. We end up with the Doctor getting back to the TARDIS but discovering that something has happened to the TARDIS and that's where it is to be continued. The story... Um, this part of the story, anyway, um, was kind of light on anything happening, really. There was a couple things happening. I know it's hard to do in the limited amount of space that is going on in this uh, in Doctor Who magazine now with the comic strip. It's not a lot happened, and uh, I think the, the cliffhanger was okay. Um, I'm curious to see what is going on with both Dan and the TARDIS, so that point got, got across. Um, but we still don't have much more to go on as far as just the whole gist of things, especially with Yaz talking to the the aliens or the characters inside the, the the building. So it was it's an okay story. It's an okay part of the story. It's moving on to the next part. Uh, Russ Leach's artwork I thought was was pretty good. Um, it's not my favorite of his, but it's also, it, it serves the purpose. The, the final page of what's going on with the TARDIS, I thought was very well done. That final panel 
It's about a two-thirds page panel, but uh, it looks very detailed, and uh, I was impressed by that. Um, kind of makes up for some of there's a few other panels in in the story that I wasn't near as impressed with. It seems like since Doctor Who magazine has cut back on the number of pages that are in a comic strip, um, since they've come back from the pandemic, it, to me it almost feels like the, kind of the quality of the story isn't quite there to what it used to be. Um, it's it's not as doesn't feel like it's as important to a story as it used to be in a Doctor Who comic strip almost feels like it's just uh, trying to do a, a television episode, uh, a standard television episode in uh, comic strip form. I'm, I'm very, very thankful that the Doctor Who comic strip is back in the book, and uh, I hope they continue to do so or keep it there. But it's almost reached the point for me where I would rather read the comic strips in the graphic novel versions and just read them all in um, a, a big story because... Even at six pages now um, per comic strip, when you get to a story that's only four parts, you have a a twenty-eight page story, which isn't that much. Uh, you can buy a a comic book that has twenty pages of story for four dollars, and you can get a forty-eight page story for six dollars. You're if you're buying Doctor Who magazine just for the comic strip. Save your money by the graph, the collected edition, the graphic novel. No offense, hopefully none, to to Jacqueline Rayner and Russ Leach. Just that's how the math shakes out. But it's it's no the you know the the uh, everlasting summer is a an okay story, but uh, don't go out of your way to to go track it down. Um, at least not until it comes out in a graphic novel. And I guess that's what I have to say for that. Exterminate. Today on Dr. Who Panel to Panel, I have the pleasure of talking to Lila Sturgis. Lila, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, not a problem. The reason I'm talking to you is that back in the, the days when IDW was publishing Dr. Who comics, you did a four-issue miniseries uh, for them called A Fairy Tale Life. But before we get into that, uh, I wanted to, to get to know you a little bit better and find out, how did you become a writer? Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with you from your your vertigo writing back in the, mm-hmm. the heyday of vertigo comics, but how did you get to that point? Um, it's funny that the very first thing I ever wrote was when I was 12 years old, I wrote a, well, I tried to write a doctor who fanfic and it was, uh, it was very inspired by Douglas Adams and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And at that age, I wasn't aware that Douglas Adams was involved in doctor who, Okay. And had written for the show. Um, uh-huh. But of course, it, it makes sense. And uh, I feel like Shada, uh, that lost episode, is one of the great great losses of our time. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, I totally agree. But um, so I was always a big fan of, of, of nerdy stuff like that, starting with Doctor Who when I was very young, around 11 years old. And um, when I was uh, in my 20s, my late 20s, I had been reading comics since college. Um, I didn't grow up reading comics like a lot of people. I started reading with um, the stuff that would end up becoming Vertigo, um, Sandman, Shay the Changing Man, um, all that British Invasion stuff from around that time. Anything Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Grant Morrison, I was all for it. Um, And um, so I ended up uh, in a writing group just through sheer coincidence. the people I knew at the comic shop um, 
And one of them was Bill Willingham, and one of them was uh, Chris Robertson, who went on to create iZombie, and um, another one was a guy named Mark Finn. And we started a, a weekly writers group, and we all sort of became friends, and we all learned a bunch about writing. And um, I had never been particularly interested in writing comics. I w- wanted to be a novelist, and I, I had written this novel. And then when Fables became big, Bill Willingham, um, they asked, did he want to do a... Um, a, a spinoff with the character Jack. And he said, yeah, but he didn't want to write it himself. So he asked me if I would be interested in writing it with him. And I said, sure. Okay. Like who wouldn't want to write comics? Right. So, uh-huh. um, so I did it and I was just kind of hooked from there. And that's how I got, that's how my career started. It was just a very lucky break. Um, okay. in that regard. Mm-hmm. So kind of being in the right place at the right time. So before, very much so, yeah. so before that you, you did want to be a writer though. You said you wanted to be a novelist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Did you go did you go to college to, to learn how to do that or did you just kind of go from your, your writing Doctor Who fanfic into <laughs> wanting to write longer stories? I had because I was also a musician and I what I really wanted to write was musicals. Um but I just didn't okay. have the the skills necessary to do that. Um but I also really loved fantasy stuff. Um, you know, I, I grew up reading lots and lots of fantasy books. Um and so the first novel that I wrote was a very sort of standard medieval fantasy, Tolkien-esque kind of a thing. Uh-huh. Um, but it was good enough, at least, that uh, Shelley Bond, who was the, the editor on Fables and, and, and other stuff at Vertigo, read it and liked it enough to give me a chance. Okay. So that's kind of what happened. And I, I wrote a ton of prose at that time, had a few short stories published. But once I started writing comics, I kind of never looked back, and I haven't written a whole lot of prose since then. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you, you did a, a lot of writing in for Vertigo with Jack of Fables and uh, various other things. And then mm-hmm. um, you, from there, where did you end up going? I kind of lost track. You, you worked for a lot of different companies throughout your, your career. I worked for a bunch of different companies uh, at that time, um, including IDW, which is how I got to Doctor Who. But um mm-hmm. After around 2012 or 2013, I started to get really burned out, and I was having a lot of personal stuff going on. That um, you know, I'm a trans woman. I um, mm-hmm. I came out as trans in 2016, and that was a lot of what was going on. And I have, you know, I still write comics. Um, I write very different comics now than than what I wrote back then. Things that are uh-huh. a lot more me now um sure. although i'd still happily write a doctor who <laughs> a doctor <laughs> who comic again that's one thing that i would uh, very much do and i feel like my book house of mystery that i did for vertigo was also very me so okay. it wasn't like i was completely hiding who i was at the time but i was enough in hiding to where i don't think anyone suspected anything sure um yeah i noticed back in uh your your vertigo days and writing for dc you also did some superhero stuff. Um, I did. Yeah. Not reading, being you know a comic person growing up and stuff. How did you get into doing superhero stuff? I felt like it was something I needed to prove to myself that I could do as a comic book writer. Okay. Because it just seemed like, it seemed like it was the tallest mountain to climb, right? Um, uh-huh. And I wanted to say, yeah, I did that. And um, and I did do it. And I wrote some some pretty okay superhero comics. But I think to do that work and to be really, really good at it, 
you have to have sort of that lifelong love for the characters and the lore and the history that was, it wasn't something that I grew up with. And so it always kind of felt like I was uh, Jenny come lately or something to it. Okay. You know, I, I don't know that I ever really found my footing writing comics, like until the very end of that, that period of my career, when I wrote some like one-off things for like, Power Girl and Zatanna and and uh, the Spirit. There were actually some really really great comics in there, but at that point, I don't think anyone was really paying attention to what I was doing. <laughs> so they all kind of flew under the radar, which is unfortunate because I feel like if if those books had gotten more exposure, I might have gotten more work. And the, the the things that I was doing at that time were things that, um, you know, this is like 2011, 2012, were things that you know five or six years later would be sort of par for the course at Marvel. And I think yeah. if, if I had been working at Marvel at that time, the things that I was doing that were a little more more lighthearted, funnier, character-driven things um, might have might have found a home. But that's, okay. you know, we're not playing should-haves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, uh, so you, you did this four-issue miniseries uh, for IDW, uh, this Doctor Who story. How did how did that come about? Was it just being in the right place, right time, knowing the right people? I was talking to uh, there was a fellow at IDW at the time called Denton Tipton, who was one of their big editors, and uh -huh. I was just talking to him about what I could potentially do at IDW, and he's like, "Well, we have some licensed stuff," and I was like, "Okay, well, tell me about you know what you got," and he's like, "Well, we got Transformers," and I was like, nah, "I don't know anything about Transformers," and he named a couple of other things. And they said, yeah, and we've got Doctor Who. And I was like, yes, yes, that, Do Doctor Who. Doctor Who. <laughs> Give me the Doctor Who, because I was a lifelong Doctor Who fan. You know, I knew everything about Doctor Who. Uh -huh. um, at that point, it was, we were into Matt Smith's heyday as the character. Yeah. And they wanted Matt Smith's stories. They wanted 11th Doctor stories. And I was very, very into what Matt Smith and Stephen Moffat were doing at the time. And so I just, I was like, I'll do anything to write that story. I'll write it for free. Just let me, let me do something uh -huh. with those characters. Okay. Yeah. And uh -huh. so I basically bullied him into letting me write the story. <laughs> so, so yeah, you said you were a lifelong Doctor Who fan. So um, you said it was what, 11 or 12 years old when you first found Doctor Who? Mm-hmm. I think like, okay. like most Americans of that time, I found it on um, PBS, uh, on my local PBS station, I was like this nerdy kid in West Virginia and uh, I didn't have a lot of friends. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember very distinctly turning on um, the TV one day and seeing this show and I had no idea what I was watching. And what I was watching, as it turns out, was the last episode of the last serial of the Key to Time series. So, oh, okay. I had no idea what was happening or what was at stake. I just knew that, like, here's this quirky character and his really cool female partner um, doing some science fiction-y thing. And I was like, I've never seen anything like this. I have to keep watching. Uh -huh. And so um, I never missed an episode after that. I used to get in trouble because it came on every weekday. They would show a single episode um, okay. at 6 p.m. <clears throat> and that was also dinner time at my house. So I got in a fight with my mom constantly because I had to watch Doctor Who and I wasn't allowed to watch TV while we ate. So I would uh, just be like, I'll be there in a minute, be there in a minute, be there in a minute. 
keep pushing it back until a half hour. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, it was a constant battle for a very long time. So, so you watched Doctor Who pretty well straight through until the end of the classic series. I watched it um, until by the time I was in high school, I had moved to Texas and I. I didn't really want to be associated with nerdy things anymore because that's what had gotten me beaten up all the time in middle school. So okay. I kind of put put all that stuff to the side. And so I missed most of Sylvester McCoy's era okay. because of that. And I didn't, um, and I've, I've since gone back and watched as much of it as I could get my hands on. And it's all really good stuff, but you know the classic. The classic era is what it is, and the the modern series is so much more watchable. And when when that came out, I was, um, you know, I, I didn't care at all about being cool. <laughs> I was um, <laughs> uh, I was an adult, and I could do whatever I wanted. So uh-huh. when um, you know, I had watched like many people watch the TV movie uh, with Paul McGann and gone, hmm, okay, that was a thing I just watched. And then <laughs> thought, okay, well, Doctor Who is dead forever. So I was I was stunned when the the new series came out, and um, I, I it was this thing where I was like, okay, well, I thought Eccleston is a fantastic Doctor, and I was really bummed when he left. Mm-hmm. And then when Tennant showed up, I was like, okay, well, this guy's freaking amazing. He's the best one ever, and. Um, and forgot all about Eccleston. And then when Matt Smith showed up, I was like, well, he's the best ever. He's amazing. <laughs> so I was very, very happy with Dr. Who for a very, very long time. Um, <clears throat> those, um, you know, those those first few years, um, the first couple of years of, of Moffat taking over. And then it, it, it wasn't my thing a lot after maybe like when Capaldi takes over. Okay. Um, it wasn't exactly for me, but I kept watching and I kept watching all through the Jodie Whittaker stuff. And so I, you know, I've never missed an episode of it. Okay. But, um, you know, my, my, my affection is lifelong and I will never not watch any Dr. Who content that is produced. Um, but you know, some I like more than others, which is how yep. every Dr. Who fan is. Yeah, exactly. You know, not, not any, every era is for everyone. And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I totally agree with you. You know, a lot of us are, lifelong Doctor Who fans and you know just because a particular season or maybe an era isn't you know your cup of tea just wait a, a year or a couple three years and you mm-hmm. know, the, the next the next regime that moves in might be right back in your wheelhouse yes and that's kind of the beauty of Doctor Who right that it, it always is renewing itself it's always something different mm-hmm. and, and I have always embraced that fully I thought that was the most incredible thing um, when, um, you know, I was so heavy into Doctor Who when they aired, um, you know, Legopolis, you know, uh, yeah. Tom Baker's final serial. And, uh-huh. um, when he, I, I knew that the doctor regenerated, um, because, you know, they, they refer to it throughout the Tom Baker era. And of course, Romana regenerates in there. Yeah. Um, but seeing him regenerate and into Peter Davison and then seeing Peter Davison take the character in this whole other direction, it was like, my mind was blown. I was like, this is so radical. Like nothing else could ever do this. No other show is like this. And, yeah. and, 
And so I think that sealed my love for the show, the fact that it could become anything, you know, and, uh-huh. and deep dive into taking this character who's very mysterious and, and doing different things with the character because there's such a richness to it. There is no right way to do it. You know what I mean? That's what's yeah. so fascinating about the Doctor to yep. me. Um, yeah, so so getting into the Matt Smith era when when you uh, talked to to Denton Tipton and IDW, um, mm-hmm. how did how did you decide on what kind of story you wanted to tell? I pitched a few different things, and the fairy tale life one is the one they they went with. I was really pushing for this other story that was very uh, wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Um, okay. And had lots of like very interesting. It was very like very very Doctor Who nerdy. Um, like I wanted to explore inside the TARDIS and do interesting things with time travel and like the limits of what a Time Lord can and can't do. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it was just a little too heady for them. Okay, they were like, "This is just kooky." That <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought it was amazing. Um, is that my favorite episodes were always the one where they sort of like dove into the lore and um, and where you would kind of explore the TARDIS yeah. and sort of like what went on in there. Yep, those are my favorite and, and you know that was something that, that Moffat loved in his area and I in his era and I could always get into those kind of, and you know he would joke about like you know the library falling into the swimming pool and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> but. Um, but I, I think the the fairy tale life story that I ended up doing was just a little safer in the sense that it was kind of this sort of very one and done classic, you know, kind of Doctor Who adventure where you have you know a mystery on a planet and people are dying and there's a thing and the Doctor's got to go figure it out. Yeah, and I think they were like, okay, well that's a very straightforward Doctor Who story. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what I, one of the things I always wondered was why this came out as kind of a separate four-issue miniseries as opposed to just incorporating it in with the regular monthly book? I'm not entirely sure. And that was kind of a mystery to me as well. I think they were just trying to do different things with the property. I'm not sure they they entirely knew what to do with the property at the time, and they were just trying different stuff out. Okay. Um, and so that's what they said, you know, do a, you know, they said, we want a four issue miniseries that's self-contained, that features the 11th Doctor and Amy and do that. Okay. And so I was like, okay, I'll do that. All right. Easy enough. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember who your artist was. Was it Kelly Yates that did the artwork for you? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. What was it like working with Kelly? Um, Kelly was fantastic. You know, th- there's... Um, there's a trick to doing comics based on TV shows and movies, right? Where uh-huh. there are likenesses involved and you have to find a way to express the likenesses um, without being, you know, sort of like slavish about it. Yeah. And I think that Kelly found like that perfect balance. I love the way he drew the Doctor and Amy. I think it was just just right on. Uh, when when it comes to writing a, a comic script, are you, you somebody that that uh, is more of a detailed script writer, and you kind of describe to the artist what you want or how 
like a, an alien might look or uh, <laughs> a scene might look? Or do you kind of let the artist have kind of a little bit of a free reign as to the, the look of the page or the, the characters and that kind of stuff? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I teach comic book writing now, and I one of the things that I try to impress on my students is that um, to understand where your job as the writer leaves off and where the artist's job picks up. Okay. And what I the way I describe it is <clears throat> when you're writing a comic book script, ideally you want to tell the artist everything that they need to know in order so that they can tell the story visually. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not really my job to determine how everything looks. It's certainly not my job to tell them how to lay out the page or anything like that. Um, that's what they're trained to do. So I want them to be able to flex those muscles as much as possible. You know, my job is to, is to give them the information that they need to tell the story that I'm trying to tell. Okay. And so that's what I've, that's what I've always done. So I write. <clears throat> It's definitely full script. You know, it's certainly not yeah. Marvel style. Um, I know what I want to see, but I also try to give the artist as much leeway as possible to um, to visualize that however works best for them. So okay. I, tr I try to strike a balance there, and that's where I land. Sure. Um, yeah, your your story, The uh, Fairy Tale Life, um, I reviewed it uh, quite a while back on my podcast, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a... a Good, fun story. I really liked uh, Kelly's artwork on it. And mm -hmm. um, I, I thought, uh, from what I remember back in the day when it came out, I thought it was fairly well received by, by Doctor Who fans. Um, I, is there any particular reason why you didn't continue on doing Doctor Who stuff? Or just, you know, they just kind of went, I was were busy asked. doing other stuff? or. <laughs> Okay. I, I was not asked to. Return. I was trying to find a polite way of um, of freezing yeah, questions. No, <laughs> um, I would I would have happily done more, and you know, if they'd offered me, you know, the like uh, the ongoing title, I would have absolutely jumped at the chance. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I'm not really sure. It's just you know, these this happens in comics a lot. You know, you'll you'll do a book, and then you'll think, okay, well, what's next? And then you just kind of don't hear from the editor again, and you don't really know why. And, yeah. you know, there's who knows. And then IDW, you know, lost the license a couple of years later. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. But, you know, that was my, it's definitely my, my one moment to shine in, in Doctor Who. And it was really great because it made other comic book writers really jealous. They're like, you got to write Doctor Who? That's so <laughs> fair. I wanted to write Doctor Who. Uh-huh. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, some some people <laughs> like kind of having that as their calling cards. Is, yes, you know, yeah, the, exactly. it's if if it's their one of their favorite shows, it's like yes, you know, I got I got to write a story for Doctor Who, um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's something that I really treasure and cherish the fact that mm -hmm. I was able to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, um, I know this is always a loaded question because whenever somebody asks me this question, I always hate having to answer it. Um, I'm going to give you a two part question: Who, which okay. doctor, which doctor is your favorite? And which doctor would you like to write a story for? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, so I will say that Tom Baker is my doctor in okay. the sense that, you know, people have a doctor, um, you know, and he is mine. Uh, that'd um, be the first one that you saw. I could see. Yeah, because mm -hmm. that was the doctor that I fell in love with. And I will always have, there will always be a special place in my heart for, for Tom Baker, um, especially the later seasons with Romana, um, uh -huh. 
because I I loved their interplay. Um, I thought they were, she was such a great match for him, you yeah. know, intellectually and dramatically. And the fact that they <clears throat> that they brought this, you know, not just a a smart, capable woman, but a time lady, you know, his equal, mm-hmm. right? To be um, the companion, I thought was just a glorious thing. So <clears throat> that's who I would want to write. Okay. okay. Um, I would want to write Tom Baker and Lala Ward as Romana, as Romana out doing stuff together. And I'll, you know, I'll take Adric. Sure. Throw him in. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's all good. Uh, I would love to write that because I love the way that, that Tom Baker was written for and the way that he could be so charming and, and funny. And um, <clears throat> there was just something about the way that he embodied that character. You got the sense that he, he just was the doctor, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite doctor, like if I'm playing favorites, um, I think that that um, David Tennant has some of my fa- absolute favorite stories, um, okay. and I think he did just a phenomenal job with the character. Just like he gave him so much pathos and so much depth, um, so much emotional depth. And like I am not a person who was ever, you know, I didn't ship the Doctor with anyone ever. You yeah. know, I kind of like that his relationships were always sort of like asexual and uh-huh. um, sort of like uh, mentor-mentee relationships, right? Yeah, yep. But the way that um, that David Tennant and Billy Piper played that relationship, I was like all for it. You know, I was like, okay, I, I see this and I like it. And I like that this particular incarnation of the Doctor wants this thing that other incarnations didn't want or need. Mm-hmm. Um so I was I was totally into that, um, and I I really treasured Matt Smith, um, especially at the beginning of the Stephen Moffat era, where like that first season, everything just clicks so hard, you know. Um, <clears throat> so I, I think you know Matt Smith definitely. I was very glad to have gotten to write that version of the character because okay. he's so fun to write for. Yeah, he's just so he's so funny and so physically um, there's so much physicality in his version of the character mm-hmm. that it's extremely fun to write because you can, you can think, okay, well, if he does this, it's going to be charming. It's going to be funny. It's going to, it's going to jump off the page and that's a pleasure yeah. to write for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, the thing I like about Matt Smith is he has that quirkiness to him that, yes. you know, the, the, if if anybody is going to portray the doctor as somebody that you you see as like a human being, but definitely feels alien, Matt Smith has that <laughs> quality to him. Yes, yes, and that's yeah. so he does that so well in that episode, The Lodger, where yep. he's like cosplaying as a human and just not just very poorly, you know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but also has this you know wisdom well beyond his apparent years in ways. Uh-huh. So he's he yeah I loved his uh, I loved his whole thing it was great. Uh, do you do you have a favorite Doctor Who uh, monster or villain that you would you would love to write? You know, the Titan uh, comics they did the the Missy mini series not too long ago, and mm-hmm. I think that kind of showed that the in in comic form anyway you don't necessarily have to have a story that that features the Doctor. You can. There's a lot of other interesting characters in the Doctor Who universe, 
that can hold their own as in doing a story with. Uh, is there anybody in particular that you would find interesting to write? Um, I'm going to answer that in two parts. So <laughs> first, I think it is absolutely true that you can do amazing doctor stories without the doctor in them. And um, and that's why one of my favorite stories of all time is Blink. Yeah. Um, because Blink is this beautiful rumination on the wake that the doctor leaves behind him, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, you got the weeping angels in there. I mean, what more do you want? But, <clears throat> um, <laughs> but that episode, I think, is, is such a great exemplar of how the world is so rich that the doctor doesn't even need to be there. And um, Love and Monsters is kind of the same way. The doctor is uh-huh. barely in it. Um, he's just sort of the, the focus of it, right? Um, <clears throat> so, but for me, <clears throat> my favorite villains, never been big on the master. Um, right. um, master or Missy doesn't really do it for me as much. Um, especially in the in the the later years where they in the, the current series the the thing they did where the doctor was like oh well, he's you know he's the only other time lord left and we're friends and you know and so yeah. I gotta save them and blah 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 it's like no I liked it back in the day like the master was hor like he was horrible he was evil. Yeah. like he would just murder people for fun yep. you know uh-huh. <clears throat> um, and like in a really cruel and mean spirit you know like. Just to just to be gross, you know, yeah, and um, and you know when when you see him in um, oh god, what's the name of that that episode after Tom Baker leaves, um, he leaves Sarah Jane and goes back to Gallifrey, and the master's there, and he's out of regenerations, and he's just like this monstery thing, you know. That to me is oh. the master, right? Yeah. Um. And then he becomes the keeper of Trocken and he's all handsome again, but whatever. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so um, I do love Daleks. I have to admit, I love, I love a good Dalek story. Um, and one of my favorite bits in the, um, in the whole Russell Davis uh, oeuvre is the, the bit where the, the Daleks and the Cybermen are taunting each other. And the Daleks are like, yeah, you're better than us at one thing. You're better than us at dying. And then, yeah. <laughs> such a wonderful Dalek moment. Uh-huh. Um, so Daleks are pretty great. Um, I was, um, I think the, the ones that, that really freaked me out the most were the, um, oh gosh, I'm having a little bit of a, um, what are those guys? The Autons. <clears throat> oh, the Autons. Um, yeah, the Autons because uh-huh. they because um, they could be anyone could be an Auton, you know? Yeah, like, that's scary. Um, and it was weird that in the um, in the I, I almost didn't keep watching the new series because in the that very first episode, Rose, the Autons are the the villains, and they're kind of wacky. Kind of, um, but at the same time, I, I, you know, for for all those kids that grew up in in London or in England in the seventies and eighties and saw the shop window dummies and new Doctor yes. Who back then, yeah, I, yes. I I still saw them kind of as fairly menacing. Because there there was that, that there's that moment when they almost take it too far when the um the the trash bin the wheelie yeah. bin yeah. mixing in and then burps. 
Yeah. <clears throat> and I was like, I don't know about this, guys. I don't know. But then they, you know, that first season is in some ways not my favorite. But then I feel like they really pulled it together after that. And they, they made some really beautiful, beautiful episodes. Um, and so I'm, I'm ex- super excited about Russell Davis coming back and seeing what he's got, what he's got planned. And I'm very excited for Shooting Gatwa to see what he's going to do. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> like we were talking about before, the beauty of Doctor Who, right, is that there's always the next thing, right? There's always the next thing, and, and who knows what it's going to be like. It could be great, and it, or it could be not so great, but whatever it is, it's going to be Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, the thing I'm interested in seeing is um, the, the amount of years that have gone by from the time uh, Russell Davies left the show till the time he's coming back, how much his direction may have changed for Doctor Who and how his experiences in between then and now mm-hmm. will will affect what we get for a new series of Doctor Who. I think that's going to be really interesting to see. I, yeah, I think it really is. And, you know, it's funny. I was so excited because I was a huge Broadchurch fan and so when I heard that it was like going to be Chris Chibnall and Jodie Whittaker as the doctor, I was like, well, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. Uh-huh. And then when I watched it, I was like, this is not really for me. And I was stunned. You know, I was stunned yeah. because I had loved Chris Chibnall's work before. I had loved Jodie Whittaker before, loved Jodie Whittaker. And, but seeing their take on Dr. Who, it was like, I don't, like it <laughs> and it was like it was kind of heartbreaking you know uh-huh. because i really really wanted to love it so much but um you know again it's like okay we'll just wait and see what the next thing is and, and maybe we'll yep. we'll love that yep yep exactly like, like mm-hmm. we said earlier not every era is for everyone and you just wait until the next one comes along and see see what, what changes are made and see how you like it yeah yeah exactly and it's funny you know now looking back when i try to watch the the classic episodes and you realize um like my my favorite episode for years if you'd asked me what was my favorite episode of dr who i would have said city of evil every time because you've got uh-huh. doctor and romana running around paris and jaggeroff and split across time and there's freaking leonardo da vinci's works and all this stuff like everything yeah. i love about dr who uh-huh. and um <clears throat> you go back and watch it's almost unwatchable it's like they filmed <laughs> so much footage of Tom Baker and Lala Ward running around Paris, falling in love with each other. Yeah. And that's like half the story is just them running through the streets of Paris. <laughs> um, there was so much padding in those that all of a sudden so you, you forget, you know, as, uh-huh. because the way that like TV is paced now, uh, there's no padding. <laughs> they yeah. don't pad shows like that anymore. And yep. so you watch those things now and it's kind of a labor of love. But yeah, it's just funny how it, how it changes I, like part of me wants to go back and like if i was an editor edit all of those tom baker stories into like very watchable very tight 40 minute episodes which i think uh-huh. you could do with most of them you know yeah could then start a lot of the location footage and uh take out yeah. the, a lot of the extraneous fluff and and, yes. and make them more compact to, to kind of fit today's day and age of how stories are told Yes, there's a lot of classic who really loved um, shots of people running through forests. I, like <laughs> I cannot ha- how much of just people 
in rubber costumes running through forests there is in that show. <laughs> yep. Yep. Very true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as far as your, your writing career goes, um, you're still doing comic work here and there. And, uh, mm-hmm. you said that you're, you're teaching now. Um, how, how rewarding and how much do you enjoy teaching and how did you get into doing that? Um, <clears throat> I just started doing it on my own. Um, I started offering oh, really? classes on Twitter and I do classes over Zoom. Okay. And, um, anyone can take them. And I teach um, a couple of different ones. I teach uh, <clears throat> one called The Fundamentals of Comic Book Scripting, which is like a six week class where I kind of teach you basically how to write comics. Um, <clears throat> I'm doing one right now that's a comic book writing workshop where people actually write a script and then we critique the script. Um, I really love doing it. It's totally fun. Um, it's a great way to make a little extra money. Uh-huh. And, you know, I like teaching people about comics. And I, I especially like teaching people um, and giving them sort of inroads into the industry who may have been, you know, sort of historically um, discouraged from pursuing a career in writing comics. So sure. it's a fun opportunity. And, um, you know, I get, to, I get to meet interesting people and, and discover some talented folks. Uh huh. That's good. And, uh, and uh, as far as like writing your, for yourself goes, uh, or writing for for comics, uh, what have you been working on lately? I have <clears throat> I have a couple of things right now that are in sort of in the hopper, uh, okay. waiting to get done. Um, my last book was a. I'm mostly writing graphic novels these days, and so the I had a book come out last year called Girl Haven, which is a a middle reader. Uh, sort of transgender coming of age story. Okay. I have the uh, the Dune uh, movie graphic novel tie-in that's uh-huh. coming out in October, which okay. came about pretty much the same way that uh, the Doctor Who one did. I was working with Legendary on another project, and she mentioned something about Dune, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm writing that. Whatever that is, I'm writing it. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Um, so that comes out in October. And the, the other book I was doing with them is a, a, a sort of a, a ghost murder mystery called The Science of Ghosts that comes out um, early next year. Awesome. No, mm-hmm. it sounds like, sound like you're rather busy. You have quite a few things going on and projects in the works. So um... I do stay busy. Yes. Um, it, it's kind of nice. I, these days, I, you know, I only take jobs that I really, really want to do. And I don't stress out too much about it. And I, I'm doing books that I love. I, you know, I couldn't be happier with kind of the state of my career right now, except if I was getting a lot, lot more money to do it. I guess that would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I can see that even with uh, my my job or most people with their job, we got paid a lot more to be a lot better, a lot better for better mm-hmm. off that way. Um, but yeah. you know, you know, Lila, like I said, I really enjoyed a uh, fairy tale life. I thought you did a really good job telling a good Doctor Who story, and uh, maybe hopefully uh, somewhere down the road you'll have the chance to do a Doctor Who comic book story again. Uh, thank you so much for saying that because that's what I really wanted to do. I just wanted to tell a really great classic Doctor Who story, and I feel like I did. And um, <clears throat> and yeah, I mean, I would, in a heartbeat, I would I would write more Doctor Who. Oh, awesome. Well, uh, thank you for taking time out of your uh, busy schedule to uh, chat with me today. And My pleasure. Uh, yeah, best wishes and uh, uh, can't wait to see what you have coming out down the road. Thanks so much.
Thank you very much to Lila Sturgis for joining me on this episode of Panel to Panel. It was a pleasure talking to Lila about her career, uh, writing lots and lots of comics. I know I read quite a few of her comics back in the heyday of Vertigo, and uh, I was a big fan of the JSA All-Stars that she always contributed a story to through that run. Uh, I'm a big JSA fan, so I read uh, quite a bit of her stuff. It's good to see that she's uh, continuing on in her comic work and also teaching other people the craft of writing comics, something I never had a knack for. I was more on the illustrating side. Thank you, Lila, for joining me. Uh, I hope to see more uh, Doctor Who comic work from you in sometime down the road. Thank you to those of you out there for listening to this episode and downloading it. It is very much appreciated. Please do me a favor and go to iTunes if you download these episodes via iTunes and leave me a positive review. Four stars, five stars, I will take either one of those. That would be great. Please also leave a comment about how much you enjoy this episode. iTunes ratings helps boost this podcast in the ranks of Doctor Who podcast. And trust me, there are many out there. So anything I can do to boost the this podcast being seen by other eyes out there, I would greatly appreciate it. So, with that out of the way, this is Jeremy Bement, your host, saying until next time, bye. Doctor Who Panel to Panel, the podcast about Doctor Who comics, thanks you for downloading this episode. Let us know what you thought about this episode or of Doctor Who comics in general. You can find us socially on Facebook at Doctor Who Panel to Panel, on Twitter at Doctor Who P2P, 2 being the number 2, and online at DoctorWhoComics.com. Download previous episodes via your favorite podcast service and find the complete catalog of episodes featuring amazing interviews with creators past and present at archive.org. Just search for Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Thank you. Thank you.